Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Let's face it, of all the dangerous activities in the world... Rock climbing, bullfighting, wingsuit flying... Those of us involved in choral singing never imagined that our beloved choral traditions would ever be deemed a high-risk public health activity. But COVID-19 has turned the world, and particularly the world of choral singing, on its head. For our first series of episodes, we've been chatting with chorus directors, singers, and composers from around the world about how they and their ensembles have been weathering the COVID-19 storm. How have groups been rehearsing, or even just meeting socially? How have groups flexed their creativity to stay connected and productive? In short, how do you keep a choral organization going in the face of a global pandemic, when the very act of singing itself is so risky? This first series is full of themes of creativity, frustration, and the importance of community during the pandemic. But unifying all our conversations is a common thread of hope and positivity for a post-pandemic future full of the music and camaraderie that sustain us. We hope each episode leaves you, our listeners, feeling inspired and imbued with that same sense of hope as well. On today's episode, we're chatting with composer David Conti of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and Dr. Jeremy Faust, co-founder of IOCSF and a doctor of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. David gives us some insight into what's happening at the conservatory and Jeremy gets us up to date on COVID. Joining us now on the podcast, we have David Conti uh, with us, and David is a composer. He's been commissioned by groups such as Chanticleer, San Francisco Symphony, Oakland Symphony, Stockton Symphony, uh, the list goes on. Works uh, that David has written have been recorded by you know, many different ensembles and soloists. You've received tons of awards, other accolades. You wrote a beautiful opera called The Gift of the Magi. Um, I learned something new. I didn't know you had lived and worked with Aaron Copeland, uh, but I did know that you studied in Paris with Nadia Boulanger, and you were one of her last students. And then, of course, you are currently professor of composition and the chair of the composition department at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Did, uh, did I miss anything, David? Thank you. Wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Glad Thanks. to have you here. I'm delighted to be with you both. Welcome. Yeah. So Giacomo, let's let's dive into that that first question. Yeah, so we were just sort of chatting. We, we were thinking about this, you know, 2020 has been a heck of a year of uh, twists and turns and surprises. And, um, you know, sort of as, as the pandemic kind of became a reality for all of us, when was the first moment you realized like, wow, something is happening here? And what went through your mind? Mm, thank you, a great question. Um, well, I had a very busy spring planned and the first concert that got canceled was sacred and profane doing uh, september sun my 9-11 piece with string orchestra which was a big effort for them to kind of i was about to go to the first rehearsal and the rehearsal was canceled and then you know within the next 
10 days, one thing after another was canceled. I had been working for a year on a 30-minute cantata for chorus and orchestra for the Washington Master Chorale for their 10th anniversary on the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop. That was to be April 15th. And I had, you know, that was a major effort. You know, composers like me write, you have short commissions to write short pieces and then sometimes to write bigger ones. So I had been working for the over a year on it. And then when that was canceled, and again, I want you to say these things that of course is postponed for an ideal time when it can happen. Sure. Um, I realized, yeah, that we were in a serious situation. Um, I, I immediately, because, you know, I'm a busy teacher, but also my creative life as a composer is really the center of my life. I decided right away, well, I am certainly not going to stop. <laughs> and luckily, you know, as a composer, I could, one can always compose. I knew that one thing after another, my Paris program where I teach in the summer was we were waiting. It wasn't really until June. We knew, no, that's not going to happen. Um, there were many, my opera was to be done at the conservatory fire motel. And they did an amazing, by the way, documentary about, they actually produced the opera in a limited version virtually with people scattered all over the globe. And they did a very moving documentary about it. Um, and I'll, I'll send you the link, but that was, I have to say, I, I need to say here, the San Francisco conservatory, which of course you both know well and are connected to in different ways they have gone the extra mile to serve their students and to keep pe their students engaged. That the effort that went into even doing that in the part of the voice department and the opera department was extraordinary. And now we're in this, you know, the semester we've just finished. They, the, uh, the conservatory orchestra played the concert last night. It was live streamed. The strings, harp and piano and percussion were on stage of the concert hall, distanced. The winds and brass were in separate classrooms using Dante, which is a technology that allowed them to play a piece as intricate as the Copeland music for the theater, which is extremely difficult. They played it with perfect coordination. Wow. So that's how we're, they were actually, it was live. It was in real time. The piece was played. Um, so it, how do I feel? I just, um, I'm determined to keep working and, um, Zane and I have talked about this a bit. Of course, I've been, choral music has been hit the hardest. There's no question. My company that I've been with since 1987, E.C. Shermer, they definitely, they will make it through, but they had to let go of half of their staff. They, they wanted to make themselves lean so they could come back when it was time to come back and not be kind of underwater. But of course, sales of choral music have stopped essentially or greatly slowed down. Um, but um, I think that uh, as a creative artist, I decided I was definitely keep focused on creating. I actually have a number of commissions. Luckily, I've been I'm blessed. I have three kind of big projects I'm working on, and uh, I can't wait went for when choruses come back. And I told Zane that um, one thing that I've been doing a lot, quite a lot of, by the way, is I've been doing these workshops and master classes on choral musicianship. And I have a couple coming up. I did one for the Maryland DC chapter of ACDA. One thought that I've had about all this, and I understand the need and the desire to do virtual recordings totally to create some sense of community, to create a product that people can share and listen to. Right. But the thought I've had is that I really would love to see choruses if they can figure out how to use this time to improve 
their to deepen their musicianship, which means their reading, their hearing, their choral literacy. And you can do that on Zoom. Right. It's I think that what I'd love to see, and I'm hoping I'm still thinking about how to do it is to make a contribution in that direction in a bigger way so that when we come back, all the choruses who would participate would be in a better place. And David, what's happening to your creative process right now, given sort of what's happening? Do you feel like you have a handle even on understanding it or feeling like you're um, able to process this at all and put it into any of your work? How do you think about what's happening now as you consider your creative pursuits, writing specifically? Well, I, one thing as a teacher I'm very aware of is that someone my age who's written as much music as I have has traction, right, creatively. And so I am. I don't want to say I'm unaffected by this. Of course, I'm affected by it like we all are. But in terms of how it affects my creative activity and focus, it isn't affecting it. Hmm. But it does affect my students because they're young, they're just getting started, they don't have that kind of traction. And so I'm very aware a lot of my intention is focused on helping them. Like the whole project of Zane, you know, and the choral artists, or sorry, Zane and International Orange Chorale have always been involved in the uh, biennial choral composition competition. Um, this year, they were to do it and we couldn't do it. So we had to hire Matt Curtis of Choral Tracks to make virtual recordings. And so I had to supervise that and we got 13 very good pieces. And of course, there were certain wonderful things that came out of that. But I was very important to stress to the composers that you have a very fine product to show your work, but this is not the same as writing for a chorus of real singers. And um, that's something that awaits you still. But at the same time, uh, to answer your question in a way about how to deal with this situation, we ha I have to help my students move forward in their work. Imagine being a young person committing to coming to a city like San Francisco that's so expensive. And though we have generous scholarship, our school is still expensive for most everybody. And then having your, your educational trajectory interrupted um, and as a teacher feeling responsible for making sure those students can continue the core. And, you know, we stress vocal composition at our school as a foundation of all composition, because as Conrad Sue's always said, in the beginning was the breath. All music is based on the breath span, yeah. whether if it's a symphony or whatever, it's all based on the breath span. And the great composers always composed uh, lots of vocal music, particularly choral music, all of them. I mean, could Schubert and Schumann have written their symphonies without having written so many choral pieces and so many songs? I mean, um, songs and short choral pieces are the compost for symphonies. That's what I always tell my students. So I guess to answer your question, to wrap that up is that how has it affected? It's affected me as a pedagogue, which I'm, I'm a consecrated pedagogue because as you mentioned, I did study with Nadia Boulanger, who was without question, the greatest composition teacher of the 20th century or the most, the most influential. Um, and I feel I'm charged with continuing that legacy. I've been affected by trying to make sure that I'm serving the young, the young composers in my charge. And I have extraordinary students from all over the world, making sure I'm serving them. And of course, writing choral music and writing art song is a foundational activity for them in, in 
within my pedagogy. And I have to say, this is interesting for your listeners to hear, this is not true in the American university culture. It doesn't mean that there aren't other people doing it, but in general, if you're a young composer, the idea that you're going to write choral music, can I tell a little story about John Adams? It's a great story. Please do, please do. So John Adams, as you know, taught at the conservatory from 1974 to 84. Right, and I, he left and I came in 85, so we completely crossed. But of course I've gotten to know him and we've invited him to school to do master classes. One year he came and did a master class and he said something very revealing, which I have quoted often. He said, the, four, the six years I was in college, the six years he was at Harvard, never once did any teacher tell me to write a choral piece. Never once did I analyze a choral piece. Never once was I encouraged to write a choral piece. And then when I got invited to write harmony, Harmonium, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and he said, and then I was able to tell, I said, John, you know, I hope you'll be glad to know that at the conservatory now, this is a regular part of our curriculum, but it's a, it's a very deep and multifaceted matter that choral music, which is, the as Kodai said, the health of a musical culture is based on the training of the musical young yeah, absolutely. singing in that culture. So that in the United States, choral music, like in every culture, is the foundation, yet it's I hate to say this, it's kind of low on the prestige scale. Something that occurred to me I wanted to ask earlier when you were talking about the competition this year being um, sung by Matt and Choral Tracks. Um, at what point did your students know that the music they were writing wasn't going to be sung by a full choir? Was it in the middle of the process of composing the pieces? No, we knew from the beginning, but I do have an interesting anecdote to tell about that. Because mm -hmm. I'm so experienced in training people to write choral music, every of the 13 pieces, 12 of them, I feel I'm absolutely certain, are absolutely solidly written and can be sung by a chorus. One of them, which was an amazing piece, that got an honor, and the judges were shrewd, they gave it an honorable mention because they questioned how practical it may be to actually be sung by actual of an actual chorus. Really? And it's true. The piece, it's one of my students, he wrote a terrific piece. It's the setting of um, For You Shall Go Out with Joy, which is um, I forget, it's from it's an old testament text. But it 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 really is difficult on a level that might be impractical for real people to sing. So in a sense, in the case of one out of 13 got away from us. Um, but the students knew, I mean, again, a lot of them, this is so true in this culture. So if I had 13 students writing choral pieces, how many of them, ha at least half of them had never written a choral piece? Uh -huh. Now, okay, they're young. They're between the ages of 20 and 26, say. Um, half of them had never written a choral piece before. The others had written, you know, had written a, a piece or two. But um, that's an interesting question because, of course, when you have a situation with someone like Matt, who's pre-recording everything, it's hard to know is what is what you've written really singable, really yeah. grateful. Now, I just like I said, I think in general, yes. Well, that's always been a stress. I could say that, you know, because you've been involved in so many, mm -hmm. I think we got a really strong bunch of pieces.
And by the way, I had to do it all online. But one thing that was interesting with the Zoom technology and screen sharing is they would, you know, send me their documents. I'd put it up on the screen. And then in finale, I could go in and edit it right in front of them. Oh, that's a new I don't have that technology in my studio at the conservatory. But I could say, look, it'd be better if the bass tied over the bar and then put it in and then play it on MIDI, which is, you know, MIDI is, of course, a substitute. But um, that aspect of the experience pedagogically was actually very good, which without COVID, we wouldn't have had. So, you know, there, there can be a silver lining. But one needs to say that in a situation like this, if there's a silver lining, it has to be determined by people who have the consciousness of traditional of traditional values and traditional education. It's like I tell my students to use MIDI. It's so great to have MIDI, but unless you have really strong musicianship, you are going to be at the effect of MIDI. I'm, I'm assuming your listeners know is like the technology where you enter music into the computer and then you can play it back. Unless your, your basic musicianship is traditionally very strong, you will be at the effect of MIDI and not at cause with it. You'll be at the effect of it and not at cause. So you'll write things that are too hard to sing, that don't breathe, unless you're really exercising your traditional musicianship skills. Yeah, that's a great point. Is there anything else? I mean, you just touched on a subject that we had been teasing about as well, but there's been some things. I mean, there are certainly other silver lining things like sort of finding this new technology. What else like sort of the the software or things like that? I mean, could you ever imagine... um, your students being remote, you know, from the conservatory, taking more students. And I think all of us know that, and this is going to be the challenge for the culture. We are able to do, to a certain extent, a certain kind of teaching remotely, which opens up all kinds of possibilities. And technology has evolved, like the Dante I was mentioning. Right. Have that technology where people can be in different locations and play in real time. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, like, for example, look at San Francisco, how... So many people have left the city and they're thinking, well, I work for big tech. I don't have to live in expensive San Francisco. I can live in Austin or or Nevada City where my partner's family lives, which is beautiful. And a lot of my friends have moved to that area, by the way, recently. I think people are going to have to decide, well, what about, what about community? What about going to a workplace and being with others? What about going out to lunch and and patronizing the businesses in the neighborhood and sitting outside and meeting people who cross your path. I think we have to be careful. We have to be careful. And I hope I've lived in San Francisco for 36 years. I hope that the sweetness and the sense of community that's in the city will come back. Um, I think it's severely under stress right now. Yeah. I hope it will come back. Uh, I would be heartbroken if it didn't. But it's a chance for us to really decide, well, how important, what activities really were important to us. Right. You know? So we've got Jeremy Faust, who's going to join us here and continue uh, participating in this conversation with us. And he's he's hanging out in the waiting room, so we're going to bring him in in a second. But is there anything else that we wanted to 
touch on with David while we have him by himself? I feel like we could talk for hours. I do too. And, right. and obviously we'd love to have you back on um, for future episodes when we're diving into specific pieces or maybe even your own compositions, which would be really I'll exciting. I'll back anytime. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm looking forward to seeing Jeremy. It's been a long time. Yeah, I know. Right. This is going to be great. So I'm going to go ahead and, and let him in to the Zoom call and uh, we'll all have a little conversation and, and, and go on from there. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. Hey. Hey. Hey, hey. We can see him. We can hear him. Can you hear us, Jeremy? Yeah, how's my... Hey, Dave. How's my mic? Is it okay? It sounds great. It sounds good okay. to us. Yeah, it's cool. good. I won't tell anyone at Room Raider about this. It's fine. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I think Jeremy knows the Room Raider folks. <laughs> yeah, so Jeremy uh, currently is... I'm just going to run down a little, little list of, of Jeremy's current... Uh, uh, accomplishments. Uh, currently an attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in their Department of Emergency Medicine in the Health Policy Division. Also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Also the medical editor-in-chief of, how do you say this, ACEP? Is it ASEP? ASEP, yeah. ASEP now. He's an associate editor of News and Perspectives for the Annals of Emergency Medicine. He has written for New York Times, Slate, New York Daily News, Washington Post, and many others. His writings appeared in peer-reviewed journals, including the Journal of American Medical Association, Lancet Oncology. Uh, he's the co-host of an award-winning uh, podcast about emergency medicine called Foamcast. And uh, he's also appeared on BBC World News, MSNBC, and a whole lot of CNN. Um, and on top of all that, of course, he's also a composer, a conductor, and an otherwise very accomplished musician. So really great to have you, Jeremy, on the show um, and with David Conti here. So so welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, that's how you can prove that you're getting old, is that you're like, wow, I've gotten a few things done. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then you realize, well, that's because it happened over a long period of time, and then you moved on from one thing to the next and pretty soon your resume sounds pretty cool, but you're like, it's just life. It just kind of adds up, you know? And uh, so now I just feel old. <laughs> well, I guess I do too, just a little bit. And I don't know if you know Giacomo, Jeremy, but yeah. uh, Giacomo has been singing with IOC since 2017, 2016, 2017, yeah. roughly a member of our tenor section and now is helping me get this podcast off the ground, which we're, we're really excited about doing it. Yeah. I've had a chance to, to speak to Giacomo at a couple of IOC events and uh, instant love on my end. Big fan. Indeed. Mutual, mutual admiration society. <laughs> Jeremy, how are you holding up? I mean, talk about, um, taking the brunt of it and really being at the forefront of what's happening with COVID. How, how are you doing? I'm holding up pretty well. I, I think that um, I trained in New York City and my colleagues there, I think, really had a, we know they had a rough spring and just emotionally and, and physically. Here in Boston, we had, it, we had it pretty bad, but we never got to that place where I felt like we were out of control. And so for me, the fatigue that I'm feeling has a little less to do with how hard it is to go to work and do my job as an ER doctor and a little more about just the exasperation of knowing how many lives we have been lost and cost by our collective incompetence as a society. And so that, and, and someone who works in public health and public health research, that's the part that is just, it motivates me. It, it's what keeps me going to want to make things better. But at the same time, it, you know, you, you, you read what people uh, think and hear what they say and see what they do. And 
and it, it can be exacerbating, um, exasperating. So that's the part where the fatigue sets in. Speaking of which, and for those, uh, Zane and I were talking about this earlier, but for those who don't follow you on Twitter, I was going to ask, how do you feel about uh, the recent election, the U.S. national election? I feel like that's got to, must have had some impact on you. For me, it did. I'm not familiar with living through a time when the the, the administration would literally be questioning the integrity of, of healthcare workers in the front line. That happened to us. You know, we were told that we were like cooking the books or making a problem when there wasn't a problem by the president. And that just hurt. And so when we have a, a, it's a new day and um, what happened immediately was um, all of my friends were like brought in like as experts, like they want to hear like, what can we do better starting tomorrow? And so I'm not in that room, but like a lot of people that I really respect are in that room already. And so it just means a lot to know that, um, that what they value is expertise and data. And so for me, it's been a tremendous weight off my back just to know that we're not screaming into the void anymore. And so yeah. now we're going to see if, if they can follow through on that. So I, I've reached, I, I've been in touch with the administration's transition team a lot in, in the COVID advisory board. And they're very receptive. They're very, they're listening. They're, they're, um, they're doing more than listening. They're um, amplifying our concerns. But now the next step is action. Can they actually, once they're in power, can they actually deliver? And, you know, I, I hope so. But yes, it, it, it feels like there's a chance. The problem is every day people are dying. And we just wish that we could kind of turn that tide immediately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one thing we wanted to talk about uh, while we have David also on the call is kind of how the overlap between, you know, COVID transmission in particular and choral singing and how obviously we're all very well aware of how COVID has interrupted the world of choral music making because we're not able to be in person together. And that's due to the way that COVID is transmitted. So I thought maybe we might take a minute to, to tap into your expertise as an ER doc, as a doctor on the front lines. And you can kind of give us a rundown of, of COVID, how, what we know about how this disease is transmitted and what that means, you know, for us in the current situation, what it's going to mean as we see vaccines and other things start to come into play. Um, and just kind of the general outlook for choral music making as we move forward from today, knowing what we know and, and mm -hmm. yeah, all that. here's what I would say for a musical audience, the, the way this virus spreads and the way this virus affects human beings is kind of like um, aleatory. It's like chance music. It's like unbelievably broad. So take a virus like HIV or, or influenza or hepatitis. And it's like, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And we kind of know how that works and we've got it worked out. And it's, yeah, there's some variability, but essentially it's not a choose your own adventure. It's like, it has a sort of direction to a path. This virus, completely um, disappoints us in that way. We can't seem to understand how it works in terms of a one person would be asymptomatic and not spread it. Another person would be asymptomatic and they would spread it, totally unusual. They could be symptomatic and contagious, we know that. They could be symptomatic and apparently not all that contagious. And, and some can get it and be fine and some can get it and be fighting for their lives and lose their lives. So the, the sort of chance aspect of it is I think the, the hardest part for our brains to get around. And I don't think that's just because we're still quote learning about it. I think that what makes this virus pandemic or the reason why it's a, a pandemic is that it has these sort of this sort of diversity of experience in terms of contagion in terms of um, its clinical course. Whereas I think of, of, of like Ebola, 
Ebola, you get sick and you die. I mean, like most of the time, it's a terrible effing disease, but like there's no chance of you hopping on a plane and then like infecting people for days, right? When you are contagious with Ebola, you pretty much go to the hospital and you might take down some people with you, if you know, your family or like you might, you know, whatever, there's some transmission there. But SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, you could be spreading it to dozens of people and feel fine. And so when you think about the... When you think about um, why why we get sick, we get sick so that we fight off viruses and bacteria um, and other diseases like fever and cough. These are designed to kill pathogens. It also tells the population around us, "Hey, stay away from me. I'm bad news." It, has, it kind of has a population you know, almost like a um, an evolutionary advantage. So SARS-CoV-2 really really disappoints us in that way. It doesn't tell everyone stay away from me. It kind of cooks. And so that's what I think is so hard. So that, to me, that's why we've had such trouble understanding this virus and why I think we'll talk about this, why some um, you know, case reports have shown that a choir, one person gets it and the, and the whole freaking choir comes down with it. And then the next choir, it was fine. Like why that happened? So we can dig into that. But that's kind of my overall Im- impression of, of why we have trouble with controlling this thing. Do you think that we're going to turn a corner with the vaccine uh, arrival? God, I hope so. I, I really, really think so. I think so. Um, but I, again, it's just going to, I've learned not to predict too much, but from the very beginning, I felt that the only thing that could possibly save us um, what would be a vaccine, the therapeutics have always been a long shot. Um, and the vaccine has always been, the, the, for me, the hope. Um, so yes, I, I think so. I, I very much think so. And maybe I'll be honest, I don't even want to consider what would happen if it doesn't really work out because it just means that we're in for a lot, much longer and more miserable haul than we've had. So I'm optimistic, but I also like a little part of me is like, just, you know, don't overstate the case. Um, by the way, David, did you want to say something? You were about to jump. I did, but it's probably controversial. We love controversy. That's okay. (laughs) I think I have it. I think I actually have the answer to something you posed about why everything is so unpredictable. Oh, was, I think I have an answer too, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah, yeah, go was ahead. it Pasteur who said it's not just the virus, it's the host? I can't remember who said that. That's a big part of it. I Here's what I have to say. What I, I have found extremely disappointing is that there is almost no conversation, not just nationally, about the immune system. And that the, the American population is in many ways an unhealthy population in ways that aren't acknowledged. And I'll say there are three markers for health that I never hear anyone talking about. One is alkalinity and acidity, which can be measured in terms of what is your internal blood condition and your saliva condition. Two, inflammation and what the causes of inflammation are, which are related to so many diseases and maladies. And three, the intestinal flora, the balance of healthy flora in your in your GI tract. Now, I think there are many, how come one person gets sick and another person doesn't? I think this has a lot to do with it, but I just never hear anyone talking about, well, how can you strengthen your immune system in a proactive way so that you are really as healthy as you can be? Um, This seems to me a conversation that we must be having as a culture rather than, well, I guess we have to live with this and we do have to live with it. How are we going to deal with it? Um, I wish that um, a friend of mine was telling me his doctor does talk about those things my doctor doesn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I that I think that this might explain, and it may be very arrogant of me to say, but it might explain why 
so many pe- some people are completely asymptomatic and other people get deathly ill. And I think a lot of people are deemed as being healthy who become sick, who if we were measuring what health really is in the ways I'm talking about would be deemed to be unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, there's two pieces here. One is um, that I think this, this pandemic exposes the, the faults in our system. And, and that, that, for example, that it's not just uh, disparities in healthcare, there's racism in terms of access, in terms of who, if you, if, so if you came into this crisis with diabetes versus not, your odds of dying of COVID are very different and, and who has access to preventative medicine and all the things that will help your body be the best it can be is really, it's, it's predictable and it has more to do with your zip code than your genetic code, right? So that's a big piece. I think that's what you're getting at. And, and the, and I think we're going to learn about that. Like, why is it that, you know, when I, if I get the virus, which I, ha- I don't think I have, um, I will do, I don't know, could do very poorly. And if, if Zane gets it, he could do very well. Like, what is that about? So I think it'll take years for us to drill into that. And I think we'll learn from that. That's the, that's number one. Number two, um, in terms of, but I still think that doesn't necessarily explain why there are what we call these super spreader events. And I thought, you know, um, it's really fascinating to think about this. Um, one of the first things that drew me into to this whole thing, uh, I mean, we all got drawn in, but was this idea, was this was this kind of um, laboratory uh, uh, on the Princess Cruise, the Diamond Princess, and it's fascinating to me that you have people who are spouses and loved ones living in the same cabin together, and the attack rate was not 100%. Some people are in the room with their spouse, and some of them spread it to their spouse, and others didn't. So you're telling me that you can be literally next to your spouse and not get it for days. And then you go to choir practice and pick it up from across the room. Like is that, that has less to do with who you are and who your and who your spouse is and much more to do with the dynamics of contagion and spread. And talk about uh, saying controversial things. I I've said this a few times, but I haven't said it too publicly because it's just so unsubstantiated. But the way I think about this virus, the only way I could possibly conceive of it is like, a, is like Yellowstone. It's like the uh, old faithful geyser. And it's like, you might be contagious um, for eight minutes a day where you're just spreading virus like mad. And you could be a mile away from that person. And if, if you're near them, you're going to get it because that geyser is spraying. And then when the geyser is not spraying, when you're not really contagious for a little hour or two at a time or a day at a time, you could walk right on top of that geyser. It wouldn't get a drop on you. And so, that, and that to me, this, this idea that um, unlike these other viruses that we know about, um, there is some cyclical, there, is, there are a lot of viruses that are cyclical like this. So like, um, for example, um, you know, when, when you have a fever, you're more contagious, for example, for certain viruses. So we kind of know that there are some viruses that are more contagious certain in a cyclical kind of pattern. And what I think in this virus is we're going to find that is that there's something cyclical or, um, or at least intermittent about our contagion. That'll help us kind of understand eventually why we'll, look, everyone has this choir practice you know, study that they, they you know, are freaked out about. And that basically that one study shut down choral music for a year. I mean, there was nothing we could do about it. But part of me was like, well, wait a minute. There were like 50,000 rehearsals that day in that neighborhood. You know, there were, there were probably other church choirs and other professional choirs and other college choirs that had, that had SARS-CoV in the region at that time. Why was only, is, is that the exception, not the rule? And if it is the exception, does that mean the rest of us have to shut down? Well, the answer is probably because enough of exceptions, one exception out of a hundred will kill people and you can't be responsible for that. But it does tell me that are there things we can do to get together and sing? And to me, I really do feel like if you live in, a, in, a, in an area not like where I live and you can get outside 
and you can rehearse outdoors with masks on just to be careful. I mean, I don't even think masks outdoors are all that useful, but you know, in, in, in some settings, it makes some sense. I mean, you go to a protest, everyone's screaming at each other, like, wear, please wear a mask for crying out loud. But, um, but you know, if you're 10 feet apart from each other, I mean, I literally pitched this to my choir. I was like, look, can't we just look at the quad here? I mean, get the freaking Harvard Medical School quad. It's humongous. No one's on it. Can we just all like stand 15 feet apart with masks on and, and, and you know, not sing any music that's terribly quiet? Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm ready, you know? And they were like, no, we're not doing that. And I was like, and look, I'm the director and I'm like probably the leading expert on this in the whole organization, but also they're the ones, the board is the one who has to like answer like the call of like liability and, and, you know, the, the, the the sort of vision, the, the, um, the optics of that. So I I think we could, I actually do think we could, but I made the decision pretty early on that I wasn't going to be that guy to kind of fight, to fight that fight. Um, but, but now with a vaccine coming, I do think we need to think about that because arts organizations need to open up. They need to stay in business. And I'm sorry, Stern Grove shouldn't be free this summer. You got to pay because we got to keep the symphony open. We got to keep the opera. We got to keep the, the, the conservatory open. And so let's go outside and pay because I want to support arts safely. So I think we need to start to thinking about how to do that. Um, that includes telling uh, our lawmakers to indemnify organizations against being sued if there happens to be like one case here and there. You know, I just think at some point, you know, you have to, you can't be perfect. We have to minimize risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And liability is always going to be a, a conversation that has to be had <clears throat> for sure. David, do you know of anyone who's who's singing in person in any way right now? Well, St. Dominic's, maybe they're under the radar. They've been, uh, they did the Fauri Requiem live stream. No one was in, that's my parish. And that's a very strong music program, by the way, in the city. Uh, with the, you know, core of eight professional singers in the choir. They did the Fauri Requiem in October, hmm. late October, early November. Uh, like 16 singers spread out in that huge space with organ, and they live streamed it. Um, when I was in Ohio in September, I went for two weeks. I visited Bowling Green State University, which is where I went to school, and I saw the choirs rehearsing outside. Um Matt uh, Matt Bowler, my former student, who's one of the paid singers at Grace, said that they were doing Evensong in the cathedral until they weren't allowed to do it. There were like six singers hmm. in Grace Cathedral. There were no other people in Grace Cathedral. So clearly uh, people are doing some things. Um, I was going to ask, this is opening a can of worms, but, um, and Jeremy, you're very gracious to listen to my ranting because I'm not a doctor, but I am a person who I, I really have been so proactive about my own health, um, for many, many decades and knowledgeable about it. Um, I, some medical people that I know, including, uh, one couple, one's a registered nurse, the other's a dentist are very concerned about the RN. RNA, DRNA, the the genetic, the alteration of the basis of one of the vaccines. I think the main one that's coming down the pike. What is what's your take on it? Well, I won't bury the lead. I am going to be vaccinated with one of those vaccines probably this week. So I, for for whatever um, analysis I have done on that, is leading me to say, I, and not only am I going to do it, I actually volunteered to do it on television. You're um, not, I'm not worried sure. about it, obviously. I, not particularly. Um, I think that the, um, again, I, I can go at levels of, of detail, but the top line is um, there's nothing about any of these vaccines that is as remotely as dangerous as the idea of getting the virus. Um, so that to me is like, 
no matter what else happens, like I don't want to get a life-threatening virus. I don't want to get a virus that can cause me to have long-term disability symptoms, whatever long COVID is or isn't. We're still sorting that out, but um, I don't want to have that. Um, and so for me, the risk benefit is like, yeah, compared to a, a pandemic virus that is killing people, I'll take I'll take it. And um, and, and then we can get kind of more. So I just I just wanted to like just let you know where I'm at. I mean, because then you understand like where I'm driving towards. Um, the mRNA vaccines are a new technology relatively. I mean, it, the idea has been around for a long time. Um, the reason we don't have any of these on the market yet, basically, uh, is a combination of two things. One, some regulatory red tape that has gone away during this time, which is actually a good thing. Um, and the second one is another kind of a good thing, which is that in order to actually test a vaccine properly and get the safety that you need and get the efficacy data you need, you need thousands and thousands of patients to be exposed to the virus and, have, and enough people to be willing to be randomized to either get a placebo or the real thing. And that also, if, is the virus pre prevalent enough? You can give it to 100 people, uh, placebo, and 100 people will get the vaccine, trial or vaccine, and then none of them get the damn virus because it's so rare, the virus you're studying. Well, we don't have that problem today. We have the opposite problem. We have too much of this effing virus. And so we've been able to test tens of thousands of people rapidly. Um, so now we can say um, that this, this, this technology has been proven to be extremely effective in the short term, and it's been proven to be extremely safe in the short term but no one knows about long-term stuff. And so and no one could say they know because it's never been looked at. We can say that long-term, they've been looking at similar vaccines for 10 years, 15 years, and those long-term people have been fine. But again, it's smaller numbers. So I don't wanna say that we know what 10,000 people getting a vaccine like this looks like 10 years later, because we don't. But what I will say is, um, I think that the, um, the idea of, uh, of the way this product works is not that it's not gonna be in our bodies forever. So if you were worried about that, and again, I'm not worried about those kinds of small changes, but if you were, I think it's worth addressing um, about like having some kind of unnatural altered things in your body. It's actually only short-term. So what happens is this thing gets into, injected into a muscle cell, and then it usually uh, will end up also in an immune cell locally as well. And it forces our body to take that little fragment of RNA and to turn it into a protein and to turn it into um, a protein just like any of our proteins except it's different enough that our body says, mm, that's foreign, that's not me. We're really good at recognizing self versus other. That's what our immune systems do. So it says, okay, this is other, even though we made it, it's some kind of like, it's like a Trojan horse invader. So let's make an antibody to that. And let's remember that in case we ever see that again. Um, and that's how we get immunity. And what's interesting is mRNA that we get is very, very fragile. And so um, it falls apart. And so within a very short amount of time, that will be out of your system. And all that will remain is like your body's interpret, almost like reverse interpretation. It's like Fred Astaire came up and then Ginger Rogers like was going backwards. Ginger Rogers was six around. And, and it's like, okay, when Fred shows up, we'll dance. Except it's not dance, it's like fight. Um, so that's kind of what ends up being. Um, so I'm not worried because I think that th these are very short-term uh, exposures. And even if they weren't, I'm a little bit less worried about those issues, but that's just my read, you know, risk. Everyone has a different read of risk and I probably don't have to go there. But um, so that's, but, but to me, you know, the big thing is like people have these legitimate questions like untested vaccines, new technology, totally legitimate. And, and the reason that I'm comfortable is that, you know, I've just, I've come to the conclusion that all that I think is pretty minimal. And again, it's against this terrible virus that I'm hoping that will soon be in our rear view mirror, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, that's what we're all hoping, I think. Um, yeah, that's very articulate, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's a great question, David. Jeremy, we asked we asked David this question early, but we 
figured I'd love to ask you as well, because I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this, but everyone keeps talking about going back to normal. What is normal? Um, what do you think the new normal is? And what things might you want to take forward, right? Like what things have we learned from this that you might want to actually carry forward? Okay, er, yeah, so thank you for that question. Early on in this crisis, before I really actually thought that we were going to have as bad of a situation as we did, as we ended up having, I, I knew we were going to have a rough spring. I did not know we were going to have as rough a spring we had, and I didn't think we'd be in it this long. I really didn't. Um, but, I, but I did say something that I think is true, which is that if we learn from this terrible situation, we can eventually save more lives in the long term than this thing ever kills. And that, 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 of course, when that occurs has, is two-sided. How, how few people can we, sit, can we kill now? How few people die now? And how much do we learn later? And does that translate into lives saved, right? So if you have a million deaths right now, it's going to take us longer to, to catch up if we learn at all. But let's say we have, you know, the deaths we have up till now. And you say, look, actually, it turns out um, this is the, it, people realize, oh, vaccinations are really safe. So we can save lives because more people get vaccinated for other things, right? So vaccine hesitancy might go down because people are like, oh, vaccines are awesome. They save lives. Oh, um, it turns out that like hygiene matters. Like I don't, I know that influenza, I, I'm a big skeptic on influenza statistics. I think Zane probably knows, but influenza does contribute to a lot of deaths indirectly, but other viruses do too. RSV is a killer. There's other coronaviruses that are killers. There's tons of viruses that are killers. And if we take the level of um, hygiene uh, forward, it might not, it, it might be that we just every year have a few thousand fewer deaths from all these other viruses that sort of are at low levels. So that to me is a big one. You know, it's funny, like I actually wanted to write this this piece for Chorus America's magazine, I never got around to writing it. They kind of said, yeah, go write that. Uh, it was like, I love you choral singer people, but like you kind of like, they kind of occasionally, occasionally choral singers sort of sweat the small stuff and then miss the big picture. So they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm taking this like special supplement that's gonna, you know, help my immune system. And I'm like, yeah, but you just double dipped. You know, and like, and, and like, uh, and the snack bar, and like, you know, we're all sharing, each, and, and we're all like sharing, we're all hugging and at rehearsal and in the worst of flu season, and we're we're sharing a drink, and it's like, yeah, now the whole choir is sick, you know, and it's not they're not dying, they're not dying. I mean, we, right, but, right. But you know what I mean? Like you've seen it go through a choir, and so I'm always like, oh man, can we just be a little bit more like um, attentive to like the basics? And I, that's what I'm kind of thinking is like would be really great would be if like 10 years from now, it's like, God, remember when we used to get like so sick and now we totally don't get as sick anymore because we're like just more careful. Like we do what the Japanese been doing. We, we wear a mask when we get sick, we stay home. Heck, right. if we can't come to rehearsal, we like zoom in so that like we can hear the music and know what's going on, but not spread the disease. So you don't actually like miss rehearsal and or, or spread the virus that you've got. And just the idea of like, you know, you know how frustrating it is to like have a great rehearsal and to have like three key members not be there. And you could send the email that says on measure 35 of page four, like, you know, we're cutting off on the end of two. Like, what are the odds that they, the people who were sick were like going to do that? Yeah. And they should because they're like, they felt okay. And they're like, I'm just going to not be contagious. I'm just going to, but they don't sit at home spending 90 minutes working on music. They don't, none of us nah. do. It's like life, you know? So I actually think that Zoom is going to be a great innovation in keeping us healthier in during the cold and flu season and to, to make the music even better because there'll be actually fewer um, yeah. examples of people like not getting their, their notes from rehearsal. What a great point. That's such a great point. I hadn't thought of that, of live, like basically live streaming rehearsals, but to your members who didn't come. That's yeah. brilliant. I and they don't have to sing. That. They just have to, they have to have their scores out, you know? Yeah. 
That's great. I mean, we used to encourage singers in IOC to come, even if they're feeling, you know, obviously if you have a fever or you think you're particularly contagious, don't even come in the building. But if you just, you know, you're getting over something and you, but you don't want to sing, to come, sit back in the pews, you know, away from the rest of the group and be a part of the rehearsal. Well, this would give, this would make it even easier for people to do that. And that's, that's a positive. I hadn't thought of that. That's a cool we know one. you're at home on your phone anyway. Yeah. Just yeah, exactly. dial in. Exactly. <laughs> just, just join the Zoom call. You mute your mic. No one's watching. <laughs> no, and I actually worry occasionally that like I had this idea and I kind of like thought, well, I could, it could be kind of a little bit of, almost like abused. Like, people, you know, we have like rehearsal policies where it's like, maybe you'd be like, okay, you can miss two, um, but if you, but you can only have two zooms also. You know what I mean? Like, so you don't want to be like so people like right, kind of right. like who, who think they're too good for rehearsal. So okay, you can miss one or two plus, or if you if you attended that zoom, it only counts as half a miss. Right, you know what I mean? Right. Like something like that. Attendance policies are going to have to be altered to to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah totally. no, but I think it's like I think and I think it's kind of all part and parcel of like you know the idea of like the director's score as well. Like your score, Zane, or my score, or David's score should be like live on everyone's iPads. When you make a change, everyone sees it immediately. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, let's realize that the technology that we have is actually going to help us make better music when we finally can. That's fantastic. Because I, um, I have to go in a few minutes. I want to put something out about iPads and get people's professional opinion. I haven't heard anyone mention, I noticed when people sing holding the iPad, they're holding themselves in such a way that doesn't open, they can't open their breath cavity in the same way. And I'm wondering mm. if this is actually not a good thing for choral singers to be using iPads instead of a score that opens up. Because there's something about, you know, the way you have to expand your thoracic, thora how do you say it, Jeremy? What's the word? Yeah, your, thor your thorax. Thoracic cavity, um, yeah, yeah. you know, to sing and to, you know, get good breath support. I think there's something now that's not true for someone like a violinist playing in the San Francisco symphony who's using an iPad, but for a choral singer, I think maybe we need to have a conversation about this. It may not be good for good singing posture and embouchure. I think you're hundred percent right. And I think that the answer is, um, I'm going to show you like, you know, this is what you're talking about. You're talking about like this, yeah, you know, like as opposed to like, sort of like this, you're like, yeah, you know, exactly. you're like Exactly. And I think and I think the answer is that screens get, are going to get cheaper and cheaper, that we actually need to have choral music folders that look like the choral music folders we have today yes. with, yes. with, a, with, a, with a screen on each side. And you hold and it basically reimagines the, the old choral music folder, but the two screens. So Jeremy, and, this is a business model idea and you could like lead the way <laughs> i think i think so i'm sure someone's thought of this uh, but uh yeah i no. haven't heard any discussion about it in like choral circles yeah neither have i the question is like you know, how much functionality um can make it cheap right so if it's just like are the screens the expensive part because if, if it's if, if it's really the screens are kind of cheap and what's expensive is like the software on iPads that's like running like the really complicated Netflix that you're doing. But if it's really just like all you need basically is like a PDF. Viewer, it's a Kindle, just a larger double sized Kindle, and those are yeah. pretty darn cheap. That's there's then, no then, processor needed for that. Then I think that you then I think you're there. Then I think that you just you're there. Yeah. And the beautiful thing you just just to kind of make some uh, software that has like different versions. You can have like your original version, your personal version, the conductor version. Um, I think that's the way to get around it, David. Because I agree. I think it and I, I think it, you notice a difference. Sound. Mm -hmm. I think also there's a way about the the performance aspect of it. That's just, and I even see like wonderful, wonderful soloists like kind of holding it like you know like almost you know one, and it looks it's pretty good. 
I think there's something about it, you know, like, I think you're right. It's, yeah. it's maybe maybe, immediately, yeah. Yeah, maybe somebody in the in the interim before we have the cheapest te- cheap enough technology that we can we can create a two screened device. Maybe in the interim, someone needs to design, you know, a folder, a choir folder that holds the iPad in it, but it's still to hold it, you still hold it like a normal choir folder, you know. So that way, at least you're being inspired to to yeah. keep a nice open chest cavity and keep everything nice and spaced out but that you're still using the iPad technology cuz I do really like the paperless aspect of an iPad you know you yeah. got silent page turns there's a lot about it that's really really wonderful you can edit the the editing capabilities mm-hmm. built in brightness you can put in all the markings breath markings and articulations yes yes mm-hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely i also think i also think that the kindle idea Giacomo, is really important too like that the iPad has this glow to it, which I think yeah. um, is not a good look. Um, it looks like you're, it looks like you're just on your screen. It looks like you're, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah, so like having the, the Kindle, yeah. The, totally. the Kindle kind of more approximates like a page, a piece of paper. Um, yeah. Because I think the audience just notices that it's distracting, you know, it's like, I'm sorry. Like it's, yes, um, it's, we all know it's the year 2020, but like, it's weird to hear like, you know, Christmas oratorio by Bach and it's like glowing screen. It's like a little weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. But the technology is coming along. I mean, I'm constantly being being prodded with ads on my on my phone about some new device that you can write on. Like it's just like a it looks like a tablet, like a piece of paper. Um, and it doesn't glow, mm-hmm. but so the technology is progressing. That, that's exciting, mm-hmm. David. Good, good yeah, thing to great, bring up. I like thought. that. Someone, yeah. someone really a lot smarter than me needs to figure out how to design that <laughs> to make it work. <laughs> well, David, I know, I know you have to depart, and we do have a few other things that we wanted to talk to Jeremy about. So we'll, great. we'll say farewell to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really great conversation. It's great to be on with Jeremy, and I listened very intensely to everything you said, Jeremy, and you're. You're on the front lines, and thank you, and thanks to all of you for uh, so many wonderful musical experiences we've had over the years, and we look forward to the to making more memories together. Absolutely. David, it's great. It's great to see you, and I say this all the time. You know, doing everything, just seeing the patients and all that stuff. It's 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 to save lives, but it's to get back to the life that we love, and that's music. So, thank you for uh, waiting for us. Yeah, we need you on the flip. We need you on the flip side. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all so much. Yeah. Um, thank we'll you, be David. in touch, Zane. Again, okay. thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Take care. Bye, everyone. That was great. That, that was, was really, really fun. Yeah. yeah. I love David. Really, really I haven't cool. seen him in so long. I just like, and he like, he's like, uh, he's like uh, one of the celebrities who like doesn't age. You're like, wait a minute, you look the same as you looked that's, ten that's years ago. That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. Well, he I'm talks about taking care. Years. He talks about taking care of himself, and I think he's he, he's got his. You know, not everyone can pull it off. He pulled it off. He's doing he's doing a good job. So we just had a few other things that we wanted to chat with you uh, sure. personally. You know about um, about you. You know more specifically, and and get away from COVID a little bit, mm-hmm. um, because I know that that's what you spend most of your interviews talking about. Um, and so the the first question I had, you know, something you'd kind of tell us about is because this is a this is just such an interesting thing about about Jeremy Faust is how did you go from two music degrees, forming a nonprofit volunteer choir in San Francisco that is IOCSF, to suddenly well, maybe not suddenly, but to pursuing a medical yeah. degree, becoming this yeah. ER doctor and, and basically going down this whole other path. And, and wh- while you tell us that story, like what, what are some of the, the big goalpost moments in your life that 
that influenced the way that the path. How did you become? How did you become the person that my mother wishes I had become? (laughs) Everybody's mother was like, "Oh, he's a doctor. He's a physician." Mm, Yeah, uh, long road. I, well, let me say let me say this. Um, when I was 19 years old, I was at UCSF in the library um, looking up some stuff. I was working as a summer student um, in one of their research laboratories, and I wanted I was a pre med, but I was also a music major, and I was trying to look some, some stuff up, and I came across a Scientific American article, and it was uh, written by a physician who's also a choral conductor. And he has a DMA and he has an MD, and he was a and he's, a, he's an ear, nose, and throat doctor in Philadelphia, um, and also a choral conductor in Philadelphia. And he and I was like, that is what I want to do with my entire life. Um, wow! I, I so you be, knew that early on. You knew I want to be 19. an EN. I want to be an ENT doctor. Oops, didn't happen. Um, <laughs> Not <laughs> who, that like, part. Maybe. Who bridges? Who bridges the science and medicine and art and does what this guy does and writes about it in Scientific American? Like that was like I was like that's enough for me. That that's cool. Let's do it. Um, and so that's kind of what I decided to try to do. And what I think um, so medicine was always part of the was always like the fantasy for me. I don't know how to explain like why some people are drawn to that, but for me it was always part of my sort of like the way I envisioned myself. Um, and I just found it interesting. I just thought it was an interesting way to live your life. I, I wasn't like a freedom fighter the way I sort of become now in terms of like equity and public health, but I was more just interested in the science and the medicine. I just loved it. Um, and I admired some doctors in my life. I think that's how it all is, is right? It's like role mm-hmm. models. And I just always think like if I had, I had really good music role models, but, but, um, none of them were like, and you will do this. Like, it was like almost like the medical people were like, yeah, yeah, you got to do this. And the medical, the music people were like, yeah, you're pretty good. That's cool. You know? Um, <laughs> so, um, I don't know. It, it's funny. Like what I, how close did I come to just doing music? And the answer is at times pretty close. Yeah. So what happened was I kind of pursued both. And then I kind of thought, okay, I want to get to my music life to a place where when I'm in med school and beyond, I'll be able to do music at a pretty high level. Like not like just dip into like, you know, sing like in the, you know, wonderful, but essentially amateur choir that like, you know, meets once a week and, you know, is okay. I wanted to like do a high level. So I was like, you know, I think I better really do this for a little while. Um, And, you know, with my parents, we're going to support me through that. And then they actually didn't even have to because UC Davis like gave me a merit merit scholarship to just like go and teach and, you know, be paid to be a grad student in music. Um, and then, you know, my parents like, were like, yeah, well, we can make it a little easier for you. I always give credit where credit's due. Like, you know, it's like, you know, they helped. Um, so I didn't have to like starve through those years. I was like, you know, I was okay. Um, so, you know, um, that's kind of what happened. I, I, I wanted to get my music to a certain level. And then what kept happening was opportunities kept showing up and new things started happening. And I started a choir. I was like, wait a minute, I'm starting a choir, but I'm also gonna apply to med school. This is not gonna work out. Um, like, what am I doing? It was like a very existential crisis kind of thing. But I kind of was like, well, I'm just gonna keep doing it until it falls apart. And then, and then I'll have to figure out what to do. And it, 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 at various times it did fall apart or almost fall apart. And there's like lots of derailings and keeping the train on the tracks. But ultimately the, um, I, I just went much deeper into music and much further than I ever thought that I would be able to. And still, um, and, and by delaying medicine, by delaying medicine, and then eventually, when I was in medicine, occasionally taking breaks. You know, I took a year to do research, which essentially was, 
I did not do much research. I just was hiding and I was doing music, you know, so that kind of stuff. So that's eventually what happened is that I kind of like managed to kind of keep go both going just enough, like the plates were spinning on the, on the things, uh, on the fingers, um, and they never quite completely fell off. So that's how, that's how it happened. Wow. That's such a great story. So you really can do both. I, can't, I mean, that's <laughs> sort of the miracle of how are you, I mean, are you able to sustain that even now? I mean, how are you? No. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> that would be miraculous. That's so, right. so, so during medical school, it was not a problem. Like I could like fly out to IOCSF and do a little work with it, you know, as, as uh, Paul and Zane were taken over um, and then didn't have to anymore. And then um, I did music in New York, um, just like kind of high level amateur stuff, occasional semi-pro stuff, you know, a little bit of paid work. And then residency happened. And during residency, I couldn't do much music at all. Um, and so I, the, only, the only music I would do would be like, I would be like a, a ringer for like, I was a, at that point, um, I got my voice in shape and I was um, a sub at a couple of really nice, um, church choruses. So if, so I, so, so I do like a Sunday morning call, you know, I get a 9am call and do an 11 o'clock service and they give you 120 bucks and you go your own way. So that was like how I kept it going. And I, but I stopped writing music and I, I, I didn't conduct, uh, very much at all. Um, and then again, I sort of, once I finished residency and then I was involved with the room full of teeth at that time. Um, and again, that all sounds very impressive to like be involved with the room full of teeth, but, and there are times when it's super intense, you know, be weeks and months where like, I'm doing a lot of it, but you know, when you get old, you realize, you know, half a year is not that much time, and, but you can get a lot done. So over the 10 years that I was board president of room full of teeth, it's like, yeah, but it wasn't that much work. I mean, there was times when it was, it was like all consuming and like, joyous and miserable at times too because anything is but like um essentially you know it, it wasn't that much time so after residency it was like okay let me reboot my music life so i started singing again on the regular i started conducting again on the regular um and then really got a great conducting gig here so it, again it sort of ebbs and flows kickstarts and there are like a handful of times where i was like it's all gonna fall apart i'm gonna fail i'm gonna fail with music and all, i'm gonna lose everything i ever had oh and also like I'm not doing great in med school. I'm, my, I, my, my residency advisors are not thrilled with me. So there are these moments where you feel like, oh my God, like the house of cards is going to fall. Um, and then, you know, just kind of try to negotiate those moments. And now I feel like, okay, it's like, it's a stable because I can turn off, I can turn off music when I need to, um, but I've never had to until the pandemic. And then the pandemic yeah. came and I had no, it was the weirdest thing. I went from being the guy who like does lots of stuff to like the guy who does only one thing, which is to think about the pandemic and that's it. So it's a weird for me to be that guy, but that's what I've been lately. So you're still, you're conducting the group in Boston, this group in Boston right now still, or at least yes. you're still their director. <laughs> yeah. So three years ago, um, this choir started called the Longwood Chorus and it's medical students, professionals, medical doctors, nurses, social work, anyone in healthcare, researchers, it's sort of self-defined. We don't like, you know, tell you you're not, but it's sort of self-selected. Um, and they started three years ago and I was just like, I joined as like a member, but I was like, I kind of want to conduct it, you know? Um, and it wasn't being led by a doctor. I was like, well, wouldn't that be kind of cool? You know? Nice <laughs> and like, I had thought about a group like this, like, oh, only like my entire life, right? Only ever since I was 19 years old when I read about that guy who conducts a choir in, in Philadelphia, which is a lot of science and medical people. So I was like, you know what I mean? So this has been in my mind. And then these students started it and I'm like, um, I want to help. I want to be the conductor. <laughs> and they already had a nice conductor and everything. So I started assisting her and then she had to move and they let me take over. And all of a sudden it's like 80 freaking singers. And we meet once a 80. week. 80. That's big. Whoa. And so, 
80. And, and then we were meeting every week until, you know, I don't know, March 13th, 2020. Uh, right. And now we, and now we do a little, we do zoom rehearsals just, and we're doing like some virtual choir stuff. So. Oh, okay, cool. What's, uh, what's the standard, what's the repertoire that you guys focus on mostly? Pretty standard. I mean, our last concert, uh, like we did, we did for a requiem a year ago. Ah. Um, so we have, there's a, there's a, there's a symphony version of us. We sort of model, model ourselves on the Longwood symphony, which is a doctor's orchestra and sciences and all that stuff. It's been around for like 25, 30 years, very lovely, amazing nonprofit. Um, and they helped us get started. Um, and now we're sort of like, you know, we're pretty much almost there, you know, like with there. Um, so, um, so we did foray. And then, you know, I, 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 not as aggressive as IOCSF in terms of new music. I would love that, but they're not quite ready. But I do challenge them. I did actually program Fly Away Eye. Um, so they did Caroline Shaw's Fly Away Eye, um, which I conducted from memory, which I want you to know, uh, which is not easy to do. No, it's not. What is it about that? I mean, it just seemed like there's something in, like connected between music and medicine. I mean, for there to be a choir of 80 and an orchestra and this sort of long... What is it about this relationship between these two things? I mean, you've expressed it in yourself personally, but what do other folks say? I mean, is there something inherent about the connection between medicine and music? People debate that. I, I, I actually tend to think, for me, it's totally just organic. Like, I love them both, and that's it. Um, I actually tend to think that maybe it's a little bit more of a nefarious connection. It's that parents who like push their kids to like be like achievers also made them like learn the violin and shit, and also made them, <laughs> and also made them go to choir practice and like you better learn like you know or something artsy, you know, like so they were like or like or even if they weren't, it was just like the the the, the panic. I mean, I'm a parent now. I see it like oh my god, my kid's got to be well rounded, so I'm gonna you know sign them up for you know dance classes and also music classes and also soccer practice, and they better be like the you know renaissance child so i kind of think that maybe that's what it is it's like a lot of people in medical school like like their parents like probably were like enforcing like a little bit of like that which is great i mean that's wonderful i, I think as you i'm i know we all agree like music is a really important part of education it makes you a better thinker um and it makes you a better collaborator and it makes it's all these things are important so i think that the what i find i'll just answer it a little bit differently Giacomo, is to say i'm not sure if there's a necessarily a connection but what i will say is the people who are musicians in medicine, I love those people because they tend to be really interesting people. There's a high they, correlation between musicians and people who are, between these two folks who are just, there are similar it, traits in, in both that you that you admire, would you yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. And, and exactly. I like the traits, you know, and it's got, you know, to, to anything takes discipline that, that's worth doing, right? But, um, but it's just more like, yeah, it's just, those are my people. You know what I mean? Like the nerds who are like, you know, into choir and into medicine like that's what a peeps I love it. so um so it's it, yeah i i don't know if how strong the connection is other than i think a lot of it's opportunity also which is another way of saying like how did i get to my resume to where it is today and it's like you know i just i thank my community i think my parents i think that my, my 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 friends you know um you don't get anywhere alone and so you know if you want to know why it's important to have arts education like look around my colleagues at harvard a lot of my colleagues at Harvard are well-rounded people. So that yeah. you, th this tells me that you need to have better education systems for kids so that they, w regardless of whether they come from a background like mine where you know we weren't struggling, or if you actually do come from lesser means, you can have all the benefits of a beautiful, well-rounded hum humanistic education. Yeah. So that's what I that's what I take it as like what everything I got I would love everyone else to have it too because if they did have it they would it would they wouldn't be impressed with what I would they'd be like oh cool that's what people do. Um, zooming out on that community, I mean, 
is Boston or where, where you are now, are you all experiencing the same sort of exodus or feeling that San Francisco is feeling because of COVID? Is any of that happening for you in the in the arts or in medicine at all in Boston? You're all sort of feeling like? Not in Boston. Not in Boston. I think New York is feeling some of that, but I think, but, but I would say that it's probably a little bit overplayed. You know, we the media is like, oh, New York's dying, you know. Right. But they've been saying that forever. Right. Maybe maybe leave us with a piece of uh, art or something that is inspiring you. Like, where do you go when you need to find resilience in yourself? Okay, let me say, let me, let me, yeah, I have a couple things I want to say about those kind of things. Number one is, um, like I said before, very strangely, when the pandemic hit, I stopped thinking about anything other than medicine and the pandemic, which was super weird for me because that's not who I am. I'm a person who is all over the place to the point of, like I said before, near failure and then somehow managing to pull through. So for me, like to only become like a one-dimensional person is, was super weird. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't, I was like, there was no music to sing. I mean, well, the rehearsal wasn't happening, but I wasn't like listening to my iPhone in the car. In the car, I was like, not, I just couldn't hear music. It was like, I couldn't have that. Wow. I couldn't have the joy. Wow. I didn't want the joy. Um, uh, I wasn't unhappy, but I was just like, just can't think about it. And then it started to creep back. And it turned out that the thing that I, I didn't go to my usual places when I came back, like my usual musical choices. I mean, some of it, but like, I I decided to, list, I, I love Mahler, but I don't listen to a lot of Mahler. Um, I just started going through the Mahler symphonies. Um, mm -hmm. And I needed these big, big things to be in my life again. And mm -hmm. I needed Mahler 7, Mahler 8. Um, these just large, expressions of, of, of humanity. That's what I really needed. So that was um, to me like a really profound in insight to be like, whoa, that's what I need right now. Um, and the other thing I wanna say is I think that it's really unclear what the artistic result of this all is going to be. Like what are the, what's the art that's gonna come out of this? And I think it's going to be important. Um, I wrote a piece 10 years ago um, based on a poem out of this book called Curie mm. by Ellen Bryant Voigt. And Ellen Bryant Voigt went on to become a MacArthur fellow and, um, and she's wonderful. And this whole book is essentially poems and letters um, imagined uh, between family members and friends during the 1918 Spanish flu. Oh, wow. And I wrote a song, uh, a piece called Suite of the Songs uh, for um, a conductor in New York. And, um, and it really is about this idea of uh, how the stranger on the train is suddenly like possibly virus, bad person, or, you know, the neighbors are also your friends and neighbors, but they're also possibly like the problem. And how do we, we're suspicious of each other and all this. Um, so I started to kind of go through this and, I, and, I, and it occurred to me like we've never really had an artistic response to a pandemic. Um, we've had HIV AIDS. And, and, but when you think of the art and the expression that came out of that, it's actually really inspiring to think that we can turn uh, this experience um, into something, uh, into a sustained shared memory. And it feels like you need a little daylight between the experience and then the creation. I mean, sometimes you'll just sit down and start writing, but sometimes you need some reflection time. Yeah, and you think of like Angels in America written like right on, right during it, right? right? Exactly. And then, you th and then you also think, and then you think of other things like rent, like just sort of on yeah. the tail end of the worst of it. Um, and so I think that you're right. I think there's some degree of, um, depending on the crisis, I don't, I don't know when we're going to start to see like music and art about what we're living through. And I don't know what it'll look like, but I have a feeling that it'll be very, very important. 
Um, and uh, there'll be some some good and some not so good. And but but I think that I look forward to that because I think that the the experience of artists during this time has been silenced. Um, but they but maybe that's meant that there's more time for reflection about what it all means. And so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to write anything really useful about this, even though I'm sure I'd love to try. Um, but I think other people really will. And so that is what I can't, that's, that's my message is um, I want, I want to start just seeing the next, this year and the next year as a, as a, as a literal renaissance rebirth of artistic expression um, that takes into, um, take, that takes to account what we've all just experienced together, which I think is pretty profound. Yeah, Great. absolutely. That's good stuff, Jeremy. Thanks so much for, for being willing to, to hop on with us today. This is our inaugural interview for our podcast. Um, so we're, we're really happy to have you on. It was great to have you and David both chatting and just to get, you know, some good information from you about COVID, but also to learn more about, you know, what got you to where you are and how you look at the world, which I think is inspiring. At least it is for me. And with any luck, we're hoping to have you back again so we can talk about many, many other things. Yeah, I if any if any choir in the whole world needs a podcast, it's International Orange. Like I have I told Zane like I was like, dude, I thought about having a podcast for this choir way back and it didn't happen and I'm so glad that you guys cuz you you totally got it. Like talk about the music, talk about the culture and society. Like I just think it's wonderful and so thanks for doing that. That's just yeah. awesome. Works. I'm excited. Look, look what you've created. Look look what I you've spawned. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say like, <laughs> Light the spark and make a fire, but the fire is—it's—it's uh, it's, it's Hanukkah, baby. You guys took a little—you took a little bit of oil and turned it into years and years of light. So I—I—I'm I, I, happy that I struck the match, but thank you for being the the, the flame. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, have a lovely evening, and uh, thanks. I'm for going to work. Us. I'm going to work tonight. Oh, oh. no. Well, then, uh, good good luck, and thanks for being one of the front lines, and and thanks. You know what? Actually, I, I want to say one other thanks, which is. Thanks for going on so many different media sites and for, for making your voice heard to try to get people to listen to facts and truth and reality and live their lives with that in mind. Um, you know, it's it's been nice to always, whenever someone says something to me and I'm like, that's just not true, to be able to go and find somewhere where you have either written about it or talked about it and say, listen to this guy. He knows what he's yeah. talking about. Thank you for being my favorite Twitter account. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> Chrissy Teigen is a close second, I feel like, <laughs> well, but you know, yes, but you. Yes. <laughs> Zane, close second. All right. Zane, it's my pleasure. And I think that, but I think that bringing it to the arts community is really important. So thanks for this. This yeah. is not an opportunity. It, it, you know, I don't know what this audience is yet, but it's important. I mean, we, it's, there's a, there's a need to reach uh, our colleagues. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jeremy. Well, take care of yourself, okay. and uh, we'll hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers, guys. Right. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison podcast. But before we go... Do you sing in an awesome choir that people should know about? Or maybe know a composer or conductor you'd love to hear on the show? How about any recent or upcoming performances that touched your heart, tickled your fancy, or made you go, hmm? Well, then we would love to hear from you. Please shoot us a note at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com with your thoughts. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. <laughs> In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at In Unison Pod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. 
Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Chorus risers were set up and broken down by Chorus Dolores. All by myself, thank you very much. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.